case is submitted. The Honorable Court is now adjourned. Sign a die. Welcome to The Term, a podcast about the Supreme Court by Law360. I'm Natalie Rodriguez, and joining me from D.C. is Supreme Court reporter Jimmy Hoover. Hey, Jimmy, how's it going? It's going pretty good. I figure I'll just continue the theme of the last few episodes and give you a little allergy update. Um, I'm, <laughs> I'm making my way through it. Uh, it seems like the worst is behind me. And so this is the part of the year in, in Washington, D.C. that a lot of people associate with, you know, rooftop bars going out and feeling the nice warm weather, obviously, uh, notwithstanding the pandemic and everything like that. But for me, it's kind of synonymous with major Supreme Court rulings, <laughs> like when the sun is shining and it's May turning into June soon. And this is the season of uh, big cases, big rulings, and all uh, Supreme Court-related news. So, Natalie, we got a big show today, right? It is. It's very exciting, very exciting uh, to be in this season. Um, Although, I feel like it came up on me because last year, everything got delayed because of the pandemic. So, I'm like suddenly like, oh, it's May and our arguments finished this week, which I'm like, whoa, how'd that happen? Yeah, I mean, things have just been kind of getting pushed back lately with, I think, probably some of the um, teleconferences last term, at least, through the justices for a loop, and they ended up having to reschedule a bunch. This year, they kind of knew what they were getting into, but they still had a May argument that we're going to talk about in a second because of a, you know, a late change by the Biden administration. That had less to do with the pandemic than it did about the actual transition from one administration to the other. But like we said, you know, we're going to take a look at uh, some of the big cases still to be decided that have been argued. I don't even think we're halfway through the number of argued cases uh, in terms of opinions just yet. Yeah. So we're going to kind of take a a little bit of a a look back and look ahead, essentially, kind of remind everyone of some of the arguments that we may have talked about, frankly, months ago back in 2020 that we're still waiting for. So that that's exciting. Um, but first, Jimmy, you mentioned that there was one final argument this session. So can you kind of talk us through that one? That's right. On Tuesday, uh, the court heard a pretty interesting criminal case involving um, sentencing relief for low-level crack offenders. Now, normally, um, the you know, obviously the last session's typically in April, Unlike last year when they had to reschedule a lot of cases for May because of the pandemic, this one actually wasn't rescheduled because of the pandemic, but because of the change in administration. So specifically, uh, the Trump administration had taken one position before the court, and then the Biden administration, basically the day its brief was due, the government's brief was due, they took a completely different position. So the Supreme Court you know, hired an outside attorney to appear as amicus counsel and kind of defend the Trump administration's old position in the case. So that pushed things back a bit. Okay, so we've seen this before. This is not that crazy. Right, exactly. <laughs> what's, what's the big deal here? <laughs> so the Trump administration, to make it really simple, had taken the position that um, this 2018 law, the First Step Act, it only gave sentencing relief to the biggest crack offenders, you know, your kingpins and, and people that are uh, arrested with like large quantities of crack, but didn't actually give sentencing relief to the lowest level crack offenders, people with, you know, 3.9 grams, which is the amount at issue in this case. Huh? <laughs> right. So the how, Biden. How, administ- how did that work out? <laughs> so 
so the Biden administration had the same exact reaction. <laughs> and they looked at this and they said, this doesn't make any sense at all, especially because, you know, President Biden, he's the, he, he he considers himself to be like a pro-criminal justice reform candidate. And so the DOJ kind of brings this case, this position, more in line with the ed- broader administration's goals surrounding this issue. And so they say, no, the First Step Act uh, also provides sentencing relief to people serving longer prison sentences for low-level crack amounts. And basically, your reaction is one that the justices had, too. And this is all because it's a dispute over the actual text in the statute, in the First Step Act, and particularly its retroactivity provision, which read literally, um, the justices thought, seemed to be pretty sympathetic to this argument that actually... Even though it may seem counterintuitive, the lowest level crack offenders are excluded by the text's plain meaning. So they really had a lot of questions for the Biden administration about why it was taking this new position and and how it came to that decision in the first place. Okay, so I want to ask you who wrote this thing, but I'm not going to do that. I'm going to try to keep us on track here. Tell us, uh, can you tell us uh, what the justices said? Because I'm a little confused as to, you know, how the text might be saying this. Right. And I think the justices were a little bit confused as well. And you saw numerous members of the court, like Chief Justice Roberts, saying, like, why would why would Congress want to do that? Why would they want to favor, you know, the kingpins over the least culpable offenders? It doesn't really make any sense. And you heard that same sentiment from other members of the bench as well. But at the same time, this is a conservative court. And a lot of them Uh, The justices consider themselves textualists, people that have to look foremost to the plain language of the statute. And it seemed from the tone of the justices question that they seem to think that the actual text of the statute seems to support the Trump administration's uh, view in the case um, that specifically that these low level crack offenders under the specific wording of the First Step Act are actually excluded from some of the sentencing relief that we're talking about here. Um, and so you had a number of justices, including Roberts, grilling a, an attorney for the government. You know, why did the government ch- change positions in this case so late in the day? And what's the process um, when the government changes positions? I mean, <laughs> it was interesting. There was one question where Justice Stephen Breyer in what could be his last question asked as a Supreme Court justice if, in fact, he does retire, but that's a whole other thing. I think we've kind of come to the conclusion he's not, right? Wasn't that our prediction now? (laughs) I guess so, yeah. We're just going to have to bank on that. Um, In any event, so he asks um, the amicus counsel that I I mentioned earlier, he says, you know, why did the the government government argue argue what it argued? They know these as well as I do, probably better. And there was a funny response by Mortara. Your Honor, I am here to explain many things. The behavior of the United States government in this case is not one of them. So that closes oral arguments for this term. We had 58 oral arguments this term, Jimmy. It was it was at that many. I mean, it's actually I think fifty eight is a is an atypically light load. I mean, the court in recent years has been kind of taken on fewer and fewer cases. But I went back. And They've also and- been deciding fewer and fewer it feels because they've only decided 26 so far yeah so that you know i guess there's like 32 to go and now um i think that includes that's like treating consolidated cases as one case which when the justices decide a consolidated case a lot of times it's like one opinion sometimes they split them up but sometimes not so looks like we got around 32 to go before the end of the term so we're not quite halfway there 
um, there's some big blockbusters that we're waiting out for. So let's just kind of take a moment to look back, um, you know, way back when, uh, and this was around the time when the election litigation was swirling around and everyone was running around um, screaming that the Supreme Court is going to have to, you know, decide some of these issues. They obviously didn't. Um, In any event, let's kind of rewind the clock here to last fall and talk about some cases that we could be getting decisions on pretty soon. So which one are you looking for, Jimmy? I think I have to say Fulton versus Philadelphia. This was argued on November 4th, um, and it is the big LGBTQ rights case uh, this year. And specifically, it deals with the question of whether the city of Philadelphia violated the First Amendment when it cut ties with a Catholic foster care agency for refusing to place children with same-sex couples. So this is kind of like a a pretty big question for um, the next step of the LGBTQ rights legal battles that we've been seeing playing out across the country, and specifically uh, how it relates to uh, discrimination in contracting laws versus the uh, religious exercise claims of groups like the Catholic Foster Care Agency here. So from our arguments, how do you think the the case is going to shake out, Jimmy? What's your prediction? Yes, yeah, so way back when, when it was argued, right, um, it looked like the, the the Catholic foster care agency was going to prevail in the case. And that's just based off of kind of a survey of some of the questions we got from the conservative members of the court, who were pretty hostile and skeptical of an attorney from the city of Philadelphia. You had Alito saying that this isn't really about, um, you know, uh, LGBT anti-discrimination. What it's really about is <laughs> the fact that what he says, quote, the city can't stand the message that Catholic social services and the archdiocese are sending by continuing to e- adhere to the old fashioned view about marriage. So you're seeing some of the same uh, kind of battles on the court play out surrounding attitudes about uh, same-sex marriage. Um, but why is it taking so long, right? Um, it was argued way back when, so why hasn't the, the foster care agency prevailed yet? And it actually could have to do with, you know, the legal reasoning that the justices adopt. Um, you know, we talked a bit back in the fall about this precedent, Employment Division versus Smith. I'm not going to get too much into that, but that basically makes it harder for religious groups to challenge government past laws um, that apply like across the board. And so, you know, it could be a case where the justices are kind of finagling behind the scenes of what to do with this precedent and how broad or narrow to make their ruling. But I guess we'll have to wait a little bit longer to find out. This is a socially, politically charged case that could come down, you know, on the last day of the term. So in the meantime, Natalie, why don't you talk about one that you are looking out for? So I'm looking at at, at a pair of cases, actually, that I, I think are, are kind of more well-known as the child slavery cases. Um, it's these uh, two two cases uh, for, against Nestle and Cargill, two global food companies based in the U.S. Um, and the suits are attempting to hold these companies liable for child slavery occurring on cocoa plantations on the Ivory Coast. Um, now, the way the the suits are trying to do that is through the alien tort statute, which is um, a 1789 law that allows individuals to pursue human rights cases in federal courts for actions carried out overseas. Not, not new legislation. I guess, not I new legislation. <laughs> um, I, I think it's a bit of a novel way to approach um, this issue though, at least in terms of modern day corporations. Um, obviously the corporations are arguing they can't be held liable under this statute. Um, at arguments though, justice seemed a bit wary of, you know, the company's arguments on, on that case. Um, uh, you know, there was a, a, a really 
major moment from Justice Kagan, who was asking, well, like, if you can bring a suit using the Alien Tort Statute against 10 slaveholders, why, when those 10 slaveholders are a corporation, can't you bring the suit against the corporation? Right. Like, how does that make sense? Right. I, I seem to remember that moment from arguments. And, and you're right that, you know, this is such an old statute. You would think that every single possible legal question, every permutation of a legal question would have been answered already. But this seems like a big and obvious question. You know, can these corporations abroad be held liable under this law? What do you think is going to happen with it? Well, so it's, you know, while obviously the justices seemed wary of the that kind of big overall arching argument, um, there were some narrower questions and narrow grounds on which this issue might be decided on, which is, you know, whether the companies knew enough about the forced labor to be held liable, which is, I, I remember something that Justice Alito um, really, you know, questioned whether they should have known that, that recklessness would be enough essentially to, to hold them liable. Um, so, you know, my thinking is that the justices are basically trying to grapple with just how narrow or how broad to go with their decision on this case. It, it seems like every time the, the court wants to avoid, you know, a big splash of a ruling, they'll focus in on the facts of the particular case so they don't really apply more broadly than that. And that's a technique that we've seen them use time and again. We'll see if it happens there. I also just want to mention the big uh, healthcare case that we got to talk about for this term. So this is California versus Texas. Um, some people actually think that it, you know, some people were expecting it to have already been handed down by now. So it was argued on November 10th. And this is a challenge to the Affordable Care Act. You know, is the Affordable Care Act constitutional should be struck down that's essentially the question at issue in this one i mean it's like the third time we've seen the supreme court uh consider this question and i think um just based off of my assessment of the november 10th hearing in the case that this is going to be the third time that the supreme court has actually upheld uh the affordable care act uh by way of background um republicans are arguing that congress when congress eliminated the tax penalty um, for the individual mandate um, that rendered the mandate unconstitutional. And then you make the second argument, which is that the mandate is so um, key, so instrumental to the functioning of the law, that its importance means that because that's now con unconstitutional, the rest of the ACA must fall. Now, you know, the court, I would say conservatives on the court were kind of sympathetic to this first argument that, the, you know, when Congress zeroed out the uh, the mandate penalty, that, that rendered the mandate unconstitutional because if you recall in the 2012 case um it was only upheld in so far it was an exercise of the congress's taxing authority so now it's no longer a tax the authority's not there etc um but what they were not buying <laughs> what they were not picking up was the argument that um the mandate is so essential to the functioning of the law that the rest of the law uh, must fall and they kind of made uh, a point to say you know the, when Congress zeroed out the mandate, they didn't take the step further of striking down the entire healthcare law. In fact, an effort like that, you know, famously failed, you know, in the wee hours um, during the Trump administration. So Chief Justice Roberts says, you know, this isn't our job to do. <laughs> um, so that's what he said at our arguments. He's going to be a key vote along with Kavanaugh, who also was kind of pushing back against the idea that the ACA is going to fall. So that's why um, I don't think that the ACA is going to be struck down by the Supreme Court this this go-round. It's just a question of why the court's taking so long um, to hand down the rulings. Well, I don't know. Is it is it suspense? Is it like cinematic timing? What do you think, Natalie? <laughs> Who knows? Maybe some of the justices do like having a 
a, a bit of flair for the dramatics. Uh. <laughs> a, a captive audience of, you know, reporters waiting after the last day of the term. Um, but in any event, uh, there are still lots of cases to be decided, and not just the ones that we mentioned today. You know, there we've covered some recent oral arguments that have been posing some very interesting questions that we'll um, probably hear from the justices pretty soon about. But I think that pretty much does it for us on uh, today's episode, Natalie. Thanks so much, Jimmy. Thanks, Natalie. And thank you to our listeners uh, for tuning in, of course. Uh, we'd like to thank our producers and editors, Stephen Trader and Daniel Smith, our executive producer, Amber McKinney. Uh, music for the show comes from Slender Beats. And for more information about all the high court action, go to law360.com slash the term. You can also find us anywhere you listen to podcasts. Just search law360 in the term. Thanks for listening. <laughs>